Imagine climbing over 46,000 feet over 600 miles on a bicycle that weighs 10 pounds more than the average road bicycle, and then taking the victory in a three-stage double-century road race. On today's episode, we'll be hearing all about the epic journey of one recumbent rider who, against all odds, went on to win the 2016 California Triple Crown Series stage race, which included the Devil Mountain Double Century, the Central Coast Double Century, and the White Mountain Double Century. In part three of three, we'll learn all about the White Mountain Double Century, the third stage race in the series. I'm your host, Justin Tu. Let's roll. How did the stage race uh, end? So you ended up breaking your wrist. That changed your plans. And I, I guess it forced you to reconsider doing the White Mountain Double, which was the last of three uh, races in the stage race. So you ended up doing that. How did that kind of play out? And how did you end up regaining 20 to 30 minutes on Derek in order to take the, the victory there in that stage race that year? Yeah, so the, uh, I don't think I actually decided to do the White Mountain Double. Uh, like I didn't break my race decide I wasn't going to be able to do the 24-hour race because of the recovery time and then immediately decide, hey, I'm going to go do the White Mountain uh, stage race. Mm-hmm. I think at that point, like, I was so bummed out about my broken wrist that I wasn't even looking at anything. And uh, there was some chatter on the social media and stuff, and there was some, some negativity uh, being tossed around uh, based, you know, uh, related to my, uh, my accomplishment with those first two stages. And even a... Um, I want to say I did the heartbreak double century sometime mm-hmm. after the central coast double century. Mm-hmm. And I had won that one as well. So, you know, it further concreted my ability to be able to win these things. Now that race wasn't as highly contested because it wasn't a stage race. It was just one of the other uh, double centuries. So it didn't have nearly as much competition, but um, it did have Joel Sutherland in it. And you know that that guy never takes it easy. And so I was able to uh, beat Joel in that race. So um, it was still a good accomplishment. But then I think just after that race is when I broke my wrist. And um, there was some negativity uh, floating around on the social media about recumbents in the racing. And just a lot of people were kind of, you know, kind of crapping on, you know, uh, my ability and kind of chalking everything up to, you know, the bike being a, uh, being unfair. And the thing is, is, um, you had asked me earlier and I kind of brushed over it on how hard it was to learn to ride the bike. Mm. And I know cruise bike hates when I say this because, mm. you know, it kind of it scares people away. And I know it's, it's caused you to pause, you know, on your, uh, on your uh, desires to actually try the thing out. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah. it, it was extremely hard for me to learn how to ride. And it was one of those things that surprised me because, you know, me being as accomplished as I am on anything to wheel, um, I just, you know, I, before I received the bike, there was no question in my mind I was going to be able to ride it and I was going to be able to ride it fast. But when I actually got the bike, my first week on the bike, it really made me question if I had made a mistake and, you know, inserted my foot into my mouth by promising them that I could ride the thing and race it in, you know, a world-class event, you know, six weeks later. Hmm. And uh, so it did take me a lot longer to learn uh, than I uh, originally uh, planned or expected. But, um, you know, as everybody has seen in the results, 
I can ride it now as fast or if not faster than any, you know, most people can ride a standard bike. But, um, I really think that's because of the type of person I am and it's kind of a double-edged sword. I want to promote the bike for being as comfortable and being as capable as possible. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I want people to, you know, I want people to kind of, uh, respect how much work I actually put into it and how much, you know, um, and how difficult it is to actually descend at those speeds, not because it's a recumbent, simply because it's just hard to descend anything hmm. at those speeds. Yeah. And, um, and Jason, you know, I, now that I've ridden with you for a number of years, I don't know how many now, at least four, if not going on five. And I've, I've ridden with you both in training and on double centuries, both on your um, recumbent and your uh, upright uh, Trek bicycle. And so I can attest to uh, just your, your sheer, uh, sheer and raw uh, strength and power, both physically and mentally. And, uh, and you're a beast even on, on the trek upright. And I also know on the tandem that uh, it simply gives you, it's the right tool for the right user because with your background in professional motorcycle racing, you're able to just fly down those hills and even if somebody like myself had access to that recumbent, I wouldn't be able to fly down any faster, I think, than, than I currently do on my upright because I lack the same technical abilities that you have and the confidence that you've developed through the years. Now, I know there was a lot of negativity, but I could imagine for cruise bikes and for other recumbent riders, I mean, was there any uh, positive feedback, social media or otherwise, uh, oh, in you the, uh... claiming all those victories with the, with the t- uh, recumbent? The recumbent forums, I'm pr- I'm, I was pretty active on the recumbent forums uh, back then, and I still am to this day, simply because I am kind of seen as an ambassador of the, uh, rec- uh, of the cruise bike and the recumbent brand. Um, and so um, I believe uh, there was, uh, and it's funny because the, uh, it's funny and a little bit sad that the recumbent community as a whole isn't as united as you would hope. There actually is a bit of a division between the standard recumbents, which are real-wheel drive, and the front-wheel drive recumbents, which are mainly cruise bike, uh, because um, the cruise bike is an odd bike being front-wheel drive, and some standard uh, recumbent uh, riders um, struggle to learn the recumbent, just like I did. And, um, you know, they, they gave up on it too soon. And so they went back to, you know, their standard recumbents, and, you know, they deem the, uh, the cruise bike front-wheel driver come to design as a flawed design. You know, they called it unstable or, you know, whatnot. So there actually is a bit of a division in the recumbent community. So I would say 98% of the response in the recumbent uh, social media in the community was positive. There were still, like, some of those people that had tried a cruise bike in the past and didn't give it enough time to get used to it or just simply didn't like it. And they immediately jumped back to their other bike they would constantly kind of just crap on the accomplishments and saying, ah, oh, blah, blah, blah. And they would just never accept it. It was almost like they were, you know, standard road bike riders. And it's like, you guys are, you guys realize you're part of the same community of recumbent racers. You know, mm-hmm. how are we supposed to change the, how are we supposed to change the uh, overview, you know, that standard bikes see us if we can't even unite ourselves. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, everybody was very supportive, even in the double century, um, even in the double century field everybody was extremely supportive mm. and, you know, as they, as you would expect them to be, because they do are a very welcoming family. 
you know, uh, only, you know, only a very small percentage of the ultra endurance um, riders, you know, race it with that competitive nature. Most of them are just out there for the self-improvement and the experience of the, uh, you know, uh, of the race itself with the, you know, the family atmosphere. So um, I believe it was probably the recumbent forum that was following the stage race. And they were the ones like, you know, in the, in the previous like two or three weeks to the white mountain double, they convinced me to get back out on the road and off the, uh, online training. And, um, they told me, you know, you should go do this, you know, since you can't do the mountain bike race, you know, at least go do the uh, third stage race and, you know, you know, take it to these guys and show them, you know, that you actually can, you know, win on a, uh, on a mountain, uh, mountainous course and stuff like that. And, uh, it was kind of one of the, um, the asterisks because I didn't win the devil mountain double, but I won the central coast, uh, the central coast double, which has about 5,000 feet less climbing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, there was some, there was an asterisk next to the accomplishment of winning the central coast. Like, Oh, what would he have won it if there had been more climbing like the DMD? It's like, well, we don't know because it doesn't have as much climbing as the DMD. So, you know, then the, I think the white mountain double is a little bit harder than uh, the Central Coast Double. I think it has like another 2,000 feet of climbing, but it's a very different course layout. So I decided to do the, uh, the White Mountain Double, uh, probably, you know, 20%, maybe 30% out of spite, which is kind of the best uh, state of mind you could have me in, because if there's anything I like more, uh, if there's nothing I like more than a little bit of uh, sweet revenge. Right. And uh, if I can, uh, if I can, bring out the salty tears of, uh, my competitors. That's just a little extra motivation. And, um, so, so for a bit of context, so you did the white mountain double, your wrist was still, uh, broken or damaged and not fully recovered. Um, is that correct? Um, I do not remember the extent of the damage at that time period, but, uh, I can say with certainty that it didn't affect the race. Oh, it I wouldn't see. have handicapped me. It got to the I, start I line. Uh, there in in Bishop California, there in the Eastern Sierras, and um, you you were starting. I guess Derek Stedman was there at the starting line as well. Um, I mean, were there any words exchanged at that point? Did he? I mean, just among no, chattering. no. Actually, there was. Uh, I kind of stayed really low key and incognito. And um, I'm going to bring up something that you had mentioned earlier about my reconnaissance of the courses and you know mm-hmm. how I approach certain things. So. Since I was taking now this third stage race, I took you know the second stage race more serious than I took the first one, and now I'm taking this third stage race more seconds uh, more serious than the uh, second because the first I just wanted to finish, the second I wanted to see if I could win. Mm-hmm. Now this third race I wanted to see if I could win by over 30 minutes and clinch that uh, overall because he had you know. I had a in second place overall. I had like a 25 or a 30 minute deficit that I would need to make up, which is a lot of time to make up, especially when the guy in second position knows that all they have to do is keep you less than 30 minutes, you know, ahead of them. And, um, that's oh, so a pretty, that that's was, a pretty yeah. solid, uh, handicap to go into a race with. But, um, mm-hmm. because I, because the, major climb on white mountain double is up white mountain. And I want to say it's a 6,000 foot climb. I think it starts at four and ends at 10,000. Mm. Um, it was the biggest climb I had ever uh, done. And it's the biggest climb I it's since uh, it's the biggest climb I've ever done up to that point And since then, 
And uh, because I wasn't sure how steep the climb is, I wasn't sure how to pace myself up the climb if there was going to be uh, – because when you look at a climb profile, you see how much it climbs over a certain distance, mm -hmm. but you don't know, you know how much undulation is in the climb. If the climb is a one set percentage the entire way, which they never are, well, that would be easiest because an 8% climb, that's 8% the entire time. That's doable. But when you have a 6,000-foot 8% climb, that has a few downhills in it, well, then you have, or has some flat areas in it, well, then the whole thing's not at 8%. There's going to be some 15% spots and there's going to be some 10% spots. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some 0% spots. And it was really important to me because um, when you're on a standard bike, you have, the, uh, you have the option of two body positions in the saddle and out of the saddle. Mm -hmm. And it changes your muscle groups and it changes your cadence and stuff. And you can use that to your advantage to go back and forth between those two positions and give your body rest and mm -hmm. recover between those two positions. So, you know, uh, you know, as you're climbing up a really steep climb and it gets really, you know, it has a really steep part for like a hundred feet. Well, you know, a lot of people, instead of downshifting a bunch of gears, they'll just, you know, stand out of the saddle and kind of, you know, power up that about the same effort, but with a different lower cadence. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as soon as it flattens back out, you'll then sit back down, shift it down a couple of gears and, you know, spin it out and you'll change that cadence, and that muscle group. And it, it, overall, you'll be less tired than if you just try to muscle through it the same in the saddle position. But when you're on the recumbent, you don't have that option to change positions. You're, you're locked into that one position the entire time. So if your muscles start to overheat, you don't have the option of standing up and changing your muscle group. You have to, your only option is to slow down. Mm -hmm. and uh, if you try to slow down when it gets steep, well, then you really start to go slow. So I needed to know, like, how steep is this climb? Am I going to be spinning my front wheel because I'm hitting all kinds of, you know, per, uh, super high percentages? Do I need to save extra power for those areas so I can, you know, surge up them faster and get through them quicker right. without, you know, lingering there? So what I did is that I drove down the previous day, and mm -hmm. I actually did the entire climb the day before. Which, you wrote it in your recumbent. Yeah, I wrote it in the recumbent. I wrote up the entire 6,000-foot mountain. And then uh, even better, I got to descend the entire 6,000-foot mountain. And uh, that was the most fun I had had ever on a road bicycle coming down a mountain. That's why it's my number one favorite descent because it had so many super high speed sections. Mm -hmm. it, had, uh, it had some really tight switchbacks where you had to like really get hard on the brakes. And then even better is um, because... In the race itself, you you come down the white mountain part, but mm -hmm. it's kind of a Y. So you climb up one part and you climb up the next part and you come down that same part. But, bef but before you continue down that first part that you climbed, you actually turn left and you go down a different part. So uh, you don't actually get to descend the first half of the white mountain climb in the race. But since mm -hmm. I was pre-riding the course, I actually got to descend that part. And it was really trippy because... Mm -hmm. Um, it has a lot of like steep undulations in the road, a lot of like whoop de doos mm -hmm. and uh, they were they were steep whoop de doos enough to where when I was doing 50 miles an hour, I came, I, I, I dropped down into one of them and as it rose over the crest, mm -hmm. it rose over the crest and started falling away on the other side so steeply 
that the bike actually, it didn't jump off the road. It actually just floated slowly off the road. Wow. And I realized like, you know, oh my goodness. I realized like half a second after I left the road that I couldn't yeah. feel the road vibrations. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit, I'm in the air right now. Oh, wow. And uh, because it's not a jump and it was just a falling away of the road, mm-hmm. I slowly came back into contact with the, uh, with the road. And I thought to myself, Oh, that was so scary. That was so fun. I want to go do that again. Oh, man. Jeez, so I did. Uh, so I, I, fin- I, finished the, I finished my pre-ride without killing myself. Yeah, and um, That's good. I, uh, I didn't push too hard in the climb, but, you know, you know, you still have to push to get up a 6,000-foot mountain. So, you know, uh, you know, did I burn myself out? I don't know. Is, uh, was it worth it? Yes, totally. <laughs> you know, the chance to be able to yeah. descend that mountain. I know if you yeah. – uh, I know a few of the competitors uh, had their uh, friends drive them to the top and they practiced the descent only. I was the only oh, person who actually oh. thought to ride up the mountain because right. what I needed to, what I needed to uh, really get my head around was, you know, how hard the climb was going to be when it comes to the descent. I can, you know, I can usually figure that out on the, uh, on the fly. Mm, but right, um, right. so in the start of the race, uh, so I just, uh, I kept my appearance like low key. I kind of wanted to like, I wanted to give myself the opportunity to where if I could surprise any of the guys that uh, were salty about me being in the event, mm. I wanted them to, you know, not know I was there until like I rolled up to the start line. So uh, I don't know, you know, how effective that was. It was just kind of one of those, you know, funny little tricks that was going to play. So um, come the race beginning morning, of the course. So from the start in Bishop, it's, it's mostly flat, right? Until you get to white mountain. It's actually probably like a 1% downgrade for like the first uh, 20 miles. So it's like if there was ever a section of the course that were designed around the advantages of the recumbent, it was that section. But um, yeah, so the uh, start of the course, you go through probably half a dozen city lights before you leave the city. And then you start with like a 20-minute uh, just open road until you make a hard 90-degree left and you start climbing up the uh, mountain. And um, we're starting before sunrise, so it's pitch black. All you can see is the uh, headlights of the bicycles behind you. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, let me see if I can sneeze. Nope. And um, I remember um, I kind of just was in the pack of riders, just kind of cruising uh, through the lights because the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, start the event, show my hand by trying to go out too fast, and then get stuck at a red light and then have everybody catch me and be alerted, you know, to, you know, shit, I'm there and, you know, he's going to go fast. So I kind of just was like mid pack or whatever, uh, in the event until we, uh, until we, uh, crossed that final uh, stoplight. And, uh, once we crossed that final, you know, stoplight, that threshold that, you know, could possibly sl- uh, slow me down. I went flying past everybody at like 30 miles an hour. You know, it was like, it was a good, like solid, um, not sprint effort, but it was a very solid effort. And the idea was to break away. It was a breakaway effort like you would see in any road race. Hmm. And so, you know, I got the bike up to like 300 watts for like the first two minutes, which is not the way you want to start a double century. But uh, that was (laughs) the strategy. And the idea was to get out in front and um, force the pack behind me to work together and force them to, you know, kind of fight among themselves because, Mm -hmm. um, it's easy to, or it's easy to organize five or six people to create a pace line if you know that that's what the strategy is supposed to be. But trying to get five or six people in a group of, you know, sixty to do that, 
it's not that easy because, you know, everybody wants somebody else to pull through and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden somebody's not pulling their weight then everybody mm. wants to slow back down. And that's kind of the whole strategy, you know, behind road racing. Mm. And uh, I kind of wanted them especially to... especially that early on in a double century, I mean, we're talking about the first 20 or so miles in, in a 200-mile uh, difficult uh, climbing uh, event. Yeah, so I never really did get the full story of what, how it played out behind me. Uh-huh. But um, all I could see was, you know, just the, the, the lights, you know, lingering behind me. And you don't have any depth perception when you're looking in your little tiny cycling mirror. So you can't tell if they're 50 feet behind you mm-hmm. or if they're, you know, half a mile behind you. It's really hard to tell. All you can see is just this big old mass of, you know, bicycle lights flashing behind you. Yeah. And um, so when I got to that left-hand turn, I made the left-hand turn. I could take like a look over my shoulder and kind of see they were, you know, they were out there, but I couldn't tell far behind. And I remember looking at my Garmin and, you know, so I made the turn at, you know, however many minutes and however many seconds and I had exactly a 90 second lead um, after the first 20 or so miles before they made that left-hand turn. Since mm-hmm. it was a nice 90 degree turn, it was easy to tell exactly when they uh, made the turn. So I was like, yeah. oh, well, I was kind of hoping for like five minutes, but 90 yeah. seconds, I guess, is all I'm going to get. And I'm starting up, you know, what's essentially like a two, two and a half hour climb. So if you figure Derek made 10 minutes on me on um, Central Coast Double on that one hour climb, then he's going to make at least that much on uh, this two hour climb. And so, you know, I got into the climb, started climbing and immediately you could tell that the lights behind me were uh, starting to separate on, uh, on their way up the climb, which is really a cool view. Cause as soon as you like make like a sharp U-turn on a climb and yeah. it's still dark and you could see the big string of cycling lights behind you yeah, uh, yeah. coming up through the mountain switchbacks and stuff. That's always a really cool sight to see. And it's the that same is. when you were doing the, um, when you're doing the ultra marathons like the Western States and you're starting at like 4 a.m., mm-hmm. you can look back down the mountain. You can see all the runners with their headlights uh, blinking behind you. And it's just this big string, this big old snake of lights. But uh, so yeah, so Derek, uh, Derek went flying by me. Uh, I think I told him good luck or something as he went by. I don't even think he gave uh, me a response either. He didn't hear yeah. me or maybe he was just being that extra serious. But I don't think I ever uh, heard a response from him. He just continued to just pull away from me. I was like, oh, there he goes. Right. And um, I, just, I just knew I had to set my pace to whatever it was. And the, and the goal of the, uh, and the, the plan was to get up and down the mountain uh, and try to minimize as much damage as I could, catch him in the flat. Because the uh, course is really, it is really flat. It has that one 6,000-foot climb, which is, you know, one-third of the elevation. Then has a huge long section across the desert, and then it's got you know it's got some like you know thousand foot climbs mixed in here and there. But for the most part, it's a lot of just really easy open roads. Mm. And so I thought, you know, get up the mountain. You know, I'm gonna lose you know 10, 15 minutes. You know, I'll probably make up like two or three minutes on the descent, mm-hmm. and then I just have to make up that extra time on the uh, flat ground. And then in the second half of the course, I have to be able to pull away 30 minutes, which is pretty crazy because yeah, that's you're you're basically, you're starting the race, you know, you're starting, you know, the 50, 50th mile point of your race, 20 minutes down. And you mm-hmm. already had a, tw- a 30 minute deficit at the beginning. So it's like, how do you make up 50 minutes in mm-hmm. only the second 150 miles? And then if you don't pass the guy into the hundred mile mark, it's like right. now you have only 100 miles to make up 30 minutes, which is just, it's crazy. But, um, so he had flew past me on the uh, climb. Um, one or two other people had caught and passed in the climb, but they weren't able to continue like to pull away. 
like I caught and passed them back. Hmm. So even though I say that I don't climb as fast on the, uh, the Vendetta as I do on like my standard bike, there is still only a very few number of people that could actually out climb me on it. Like in the uh, double centuries, if you were to look at like, you know, a Strava segment on that day of that course, mm -hmm. there might be one or two people that can out climb me on a one hour climb, even though I'm in the recumbent. And that's because, you know, those are really fast racers for the majority, you know, of your regular, you know, your standard, uh, double century riders, you know, are competitive. They only climb about as fast as I do on the, uh, on the vendetta. And, um, that just goes to show, you know, how well it is, you know, it's a recumbent and yeah, it is, you know, seven to 10 pounds heavier, but it doesn't climb any worse because it's a recumbent. It climbs just as well as any other seven or pound 10 or seven to 10 pound heavier road bike would climb. It's mm. only a weight disadvantage. It's not a design disadvantage. And, um, so got up the climb and I remember when Derek flew past me as he was descending, I remember taking note of, uh, what turn that he had passed me in. Mm. So, and then I remember the time that, uh, I had on my clock. So whatever, so like say it was uh, three hours and 53 minutes. If I got back to that point at four hours, even he would have a seven minute advantage. So I remembered the turn. I remember the time I got up to the top of the climb and, uh, I kind of fumbled around with my, um, trying to get my, uh, my powder into my bottles. I remember dropping my lens from my helmet uh -huh. uh, on the floor. Cause I was kind of fumbling around up there because I was kind of like, you know, in a hurry. Yeah. And, uh, I remember getting back down to that turn and he had a nine minute lead on me, which is, um, a lot closer of a margin than I originally thought it would be. Mm -hmm. I did a really well to pace myself up the climb. I thought, you know, I might've burnt myself out a little, you know, I might've burnt a few too many matches. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think it was an, I want to say it was a nine minute uh, or a nine minute gap. So he had made up a little over 10 minutes when you consider that I started a minute and a half ahead of him. And then uh, I believe uh, looking at the data afterwards, I only made up like maybe a minute on the downhill all the way back down. So, you know, like I was telling you, you know, I'll trade having a nine a minute, nine a minute advantage on the climb for a one minute advantage on the downhill any day of the week. You know, right. if you gave me that option. And I'd imagine yeah. Derek must be a uh, pretty savvy descender himself uh, from what it, what it seems like. I mean, that's a very long descent and uh, for, for him to be able to keep quite a bit of his advantage. Uh, I guess goes to show that he was doing pretty good going down there himself. No, he's uh, yeah, he's definitely uh, he's definitely a uh, uh, well above average uh, road bike descender mm -hmm. um, based on uh, what I've seen, and um, you know, and that's what I expect. Uh, so the uh, got down into the valley, and um, I remember I filled up at the top of the mountain. You ride across the valley, you do a small climb. I bypassed that aid station because I was planning on going to the next aid station. So I was planning on going, I think, about 60 miles mm -hmm. between the top of the mountain to the next aid station because uh, if, you, if you figure, uh, you know, 16 of that uh, miles are only going to take you 10 minutes because of the descent, then, you know, you can kind of cut that distance out. Mm -hmm. So I figured, you know, two hours to get to that, uh, two hours to do like the next 60 or so miles and uh, then I could get to the uh, refilling station. I think it's like mile, I don't know, 90 or 100 or something like that. I would have to look up the, uh, the profile of the course to know for sure. 
But um, so I skipped the 1A station. I came into the, uh, oh, and I had just passed him. I had passed Derek, I want to say, like two or three miles before um, the uh, planned stop at the next town, which is like a little tiny strip town. And uh, I remember uh, and, when and I had was pa- about mile 100, you said? I want to give, give or take about a mile 100. It was at least 100, probably 100 to 110. I don't remember the specifics. So but, then, um, at this point, you caught up to him. Now you only have 100 miles to now make up that difference in terms of the time that advantage he had on you from the first two races. Yeah, so with 100 miles remaining in the course, I had to open up uh, close to a 30-minute lead. And um, I remember when I passed him, I was approaching him slowly, and he could uh, I know he saw me coming. Because mm-hmm. I remember he had, I had seen him looking back when I was within 100 yards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I made sure that when I did actually pass him, I made sure to surge past him with uh, a good amount of speed. And I could see him in my ear, in my mirror, stand up and like, you know, try to get behind me. But I kept the power on until, you know, he sat back down and, you know, gave up. I wasn't going to let him just latch on. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, he conceded to, you know, he was going to have to run his own pace and, you know, he yeah. was going to have to just keep me within sight. And, you know, I was dedicated to just keep going. So I roll into the next town and there's people everywhere. And so I think, okay, aid station's got to be around here somewhere. There's a, it's like a, um, it's a little tiny town in the middle of nowhere, mm. but there's like um, outdoor strip mall where they have right. tables set up with antiques and uh, it's like a little tourist trap. And I don't know why you would drive out to the middle of the desert to buy antiques, but apparently it was, there was enough people to do it that, you know, there was enough confusion going on to where I couldn't find the aid station. I had to slow down to like, you know, 12 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, sit up and I'm looking on both sides of the road for anything that resembles an aid station. I'm, you know, I'm doing what anybody, you know, in a double century, you know, race would look for. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for that person to stand out at the side of the road and wave you in. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, I'm looking for that person to wave their hands. Like we're over here. Because, you know, how many bicycle racers are you going to see going through the middle of the desert? Anybody on a bicycle is going to be part of your event. So, you know, as an aid station person, your job should be to look for the first bicycle that you see and wave them towards you, especially when you see that there's a bunch of other people around you doing other stuff. So, of course, the bicycle racer is going to be confused, especially when you don't have like a big sign or anything. So long story short, I missed the aid station. I went through the entire town at way slower speeds than I would have liked to have gone and never found everybody. And I remember getting to the very end of the town, slowing down to like almost 10 miles an hour, looked behind me, which is hard to do on the recumbent. And I didn't see anybody waving me down. And I'm just like, what the fuck? (laughs) What's what, what just happened? And I'm out of water because I remember finishing my water like 10 miles before I got to the aid station, knowing that I was going to get to refill. It's already like 90 degrees outside. Yeah. And now I'm like, crap, I had, okay, well, screw it. Just pick the pace back up. I don't want Derek to catch me. Right. So I, uh, I get going and I, and so I know to myself, cause I'm looking at my little profile sheet, uh, that I printed out that tells me where all the climbs are. And it tells me where all the aid stations are at the miles. And it's like, all right, I got another, I think 18 miles to the next aid station. So, you know, 45 minutes, I can make it another 45 minutes. You know, I know it's hot. I know I'm thirsty, but I'm not going to die from uh, 45 minutes of, uh, you know, not having water, which at this mm. point is probably about an hour. And, uh, so, uh, you know, the funny thing was, is after I cruised through the, uh, city, the person who was sitting in the back of their truck with the water jug for the aid station saw mm. me go by and thought to themselves, Oh, he didn't stop. 
you know what? Maybe I should go out to the edge of the road and wave them down. Right. So she actually did wave down Derek. So Derek was able to get uh, water. I didn't get water. So then I get 18 miles in, uh, 18 miles uh, to the next aid station. I do this one extra climb uh, or this, this next climb. And I remember I'm just baking the sun. I've got the worst case of cotton mouth. I get oh to the I get to the uh, the intersection where the water stop's supposed to be. No water stop. Oh no. Nothing. And I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> so then I'm looking at my profile sheet, and I got like another. I got this long climb of like you know 2,000 feet, and it's like I want to say 15 or so miles to the next intersection where there's supposed to be these like the famous smoothie stop. Mm. And I'm like, all right, well, I got no choice. I got to just keep going until I find water out in the middle of the goddamn desert at one oh point. So I just do the next climb and I'm just like, now I'm like, I'm trying to fight off cramping. I'm so dehydrated. Oh. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm seriously lacking on nutrition because as you know, all my nutrition is in my drink. Right. So it's not like I can just take in the dry powder. That's never going to work. So if I don't have water to mix my powder and now I'm low on calories okay. and I'm still trying to maintain, you know, whatever I can as a race pace. So I'm just like, I'm having to mentally recalculate how hard I can go because if I keep missing aid stations at this pace, I'm eventually going to fall apart. So it's just like, do I slow down in expectation that I might not even get the next aid station or do I, you know, do I keep going, you know, at this pace, hoping that I get to the next aid station and there'll actually be somebody there. Cause that's already two aid stations that I've missed. Right. And um, now were you afraid at any point, in missing all of these. And for those who don't know the course, I mean, it very much feels like you're in the middle of nowhere and in a very hot middle of nowhere. So was there ever the thought of, um, I'm off fear? Course. no, well, not even off course, but the fear of not having water or just, I mean, literally even just dropping dead because you've missed every uh, water stop and <laughs> you're going to keep missing them. No, because, um, you know, the, the, there was never any fear of actually being in danger for lack of water. Uh -huh. uh, only the, uh, only the anger for compromising my racing ability. Uh, um, the, uh, cause you know, even being in the middle of the desert, there's still going to be a car that passes you, you know, once every 10, 15 minutes. And if you were ever mm -hmm. in serious danger, you could always flag somebody down, even if mm -hmm. they aren't related to the race and have them give you a hand. You know, you never know. You might have that random guy in a Toyota Camry swing by and give you some mini donuts and some water in the middle of some canyon somewhere. <laughs> so, um, yes. yeah, so I remember I got to the next climb and now I'm going on, I want to say two hours without water. Mm -hmm. And uh, I get into the, um, I roll into the smoothie stop and unfortunately it's like on some gravel turnout. Uh -huh. That's like this really deep gravel. So I can't even ride through it. So like as soon as I drop into the thing, you know, I lose all ability to pedal to this thing. So I have to hop out and I'm like trying to run up to the aid station, which is uphill in the gravel, oh, kind of a repeat yeah. of the damn uh, church stop from the previous event. Yeah. And I'm already super salty because yeah. I'm dehydrated and I'm just, I'm, I'm upset about the missing aid stations and I'm, I'm a little pissed off inside, but I'm mm -hmm. trying to keep it internally because mm -hmm. um, I don't uh -huh. want, and I want the aid station people to feel like threatened. I get into the uh, aid station and my only concern is getting water. I don't care about anything else in the aid station. I just want water. Mm. But because the, you know, the famous smoothie stop is kind of like the famous lunch stop behind the church of the previous event, mm. you know, and they're, you know, the aid station crew is geared there to make your, your stay there as comfortable as possible. Mm 
You know, they're not right. thinking, get this guy in and out as fast as possible. They're thinking, you know, show this guy, you know, as much uh, hospitality as we can. Right. And uh, so I was just like, I just need some water. And they're like, do you want a smoothie or anything? No, no, no. I just, I just need some water. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, can you, can you guys fill this up for me? They're like, no, we can't fill up your bottles. I was like, what? I was like, how do I get water? Well, you have to fill them up yourself. I'm like, you can't help me fill up my bottles. I have to fill them up myself. Yeah. yeah. But would you like a smoothie? No, I don't want a smoothie. I just want somebody to help me throw some water in these bottles. It's like, yeah. what, what do you not understand? And I, I know they didn't mean anything by it, but I was just, I was so pissed off at missing the previous two aid stations. I just wanted, I just wanted to tackle somebody to the ground and beat them up to make myself <laughs> feel better. I was just so oh, yeah. upset at that point. Yeah. And uh, so finally, and they could see it, they could see it in my eyes, even though my eyes are behind some sunglasses, they could tell that I was not happy. And they're probably just wondering to themselves, why is this guy so pissed off? Right. And um, yeah, they were probably thinking you're one of those, uh, those racers that take it too seriously, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, so the, uh, I finally, you know, I, I work my way to the back of the aid station where they have the uh, water on the table. And I'm like, I'm like fumbling around trying to get my powder in there. And finally one of the uh, younger, um, one of the younger volunteers says, like, would you like a hand? I was like, Oh, please. Thank you. And so she helped me fill the bottles. I got my water in there. And then uh, I remember uh, I remember like drinking half of a bottle before I even put the powder in of just pure water and then throwing the powder in there. And then uh, the good news was uh, the next aid station I was going to get to was this exact same aid station because we were going to do like a 20-mile a loop out and over this mountain and then come back to this next aid station. So at least I knew that in 20 miles, I was definitely going to find an aid station assuming they didn't all pack up and leave in the 20 miles that I was out right. pedaling. Right, right. So um, as soon as I left the A station, I, um, I think I remember grabbing um, like a Nutri-Grain bar or some Fig Newtons or something from the A station, which is really uncommon for me. But because mm. I had gone for so long without water or calories, mm-hmm. I figure I needed some extra calories in my system to catch up. So uh, as soon as I left the A station, I was uh, just trying to eat the uh, Fig Newtons. And then I think I drank a, uh, an entire bottle of Accelerade within like the first two miles of leaving the aid station because wow. I figure, you know, uh, the remaining uh, bot- second bottle would be enough to get me through the 20-mile loop back to them so I could fill up again. And this whole time I'm leaving the aid station, I'm like, or the first two miles I'm leaving the aid station, I'm like looking right over my shoulder out across the valley trying to spot to see if Derek is coming down the hill because you could oh, see yeah. about, you know, you could see probably six miles behind you. But um, – it's really kind of difficult to see out that far. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't sure, you know, I, I couldn't be sure if I didn't see him or not, or if, you know, maybe I missed him. And so it was like, all right, well, I'm back in the race. I have my hydration. I'll be able to get more hydration at when I get back to that stop. So, you know, I should be able to be good for the remainder of the race. So I do the, uh, I do the loop. And then um, I think I stop at the smoothie station again and refill. I, you know what? You know what? Now that I think about it, I'd have to look at the data. I think I decide to skip the smoothie aid station because of the gravel situation. And I think I planned on skipping the smoothie aid station and actually going the extra 15, 20 miles to the uh, next town and hitting that aid station, which ends up, which ends up biting me in the ass because when I get into that town, Uh there's no aid station. Oh no. That's, that's the third aid station that I'm missing. And apparently they were there, uh, set up behind the elementary school, 
mm-hmm. but they didn't have any signage and they didn't have anybody out there to tell you, you need to turn in this driveway and we're behind this building. Mm-hmm. And what's crazy about that town is completely opposite of the first little tiny strip mall town mm-hmm. where there was all kinds of people in this last town. It was completely deserted, not a soul in sight, no cars on the street. It was like a ghost town, like you see in a movie. Mm. There was nothing there. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, this is kind of eerie. There's supposed to be an A station here somewhere, but I don't see yeah. anything. Right. And so I'm like, now I'm out of water again. And um, I was just like, crap. So now I'm out of water. Um, I think somewhere just before that or somewhere after that, there's an agricultural uh, stop. Uh-huh. Um, and um, Somebody had poured out like a soda. I don't think there was anybody there. It was closed. But somebody had poured out like a soda or something um, outside the back of like the booth. Uh-huh. And there was all kinds of, um, of those like hornets, like eating, oh. eating the sugar of the soda. Yeah. So when I rode through there, the hornets got all disrupted and uh, they all started swarming around me. So I remember like hitting oh. the pedals really hard to like surge away from them. <laughs> and uh, it's when I did that, all of a sudden it brought on this like extreme uh, case of hot foot. So like I had to actually unclip from the pedals and coast for like a good solid two minutes to try to let my feet like cool down. I had the hot foot was so bad. I could barely put any pressure on the pedals and it was just, the sun was baking. It was so damn hot. There was a headwind. And uh, so then I got to, I think I got to the town. There was no aid station. Now I'm, now I'm like suffering from dehydration again. The uh, we're going through the middle of um, just this agricultural area, so there's just there's nothing but green fields on either side of you with sprinklers going, <laughs> and you're just baking in the sun, oh and the God. water is just it's not hitting you, right. and so like I'm going, and now I'm like crap. There's only one water stop left. I have like 35 miles to go, yeah. um, and uh, I'm like I'm dying. I'm so tired. I'm so thirsty. This sucks. Mm-hmm. I'm like looking at the, uh, the small like ranch houses that I'm passing uh-huh. trying to see if I could see one of them with like a hose out front. Like if I could, if I were able to spot a, like a guaranteed source of water out front that could, I could quickly get to without losing too much time, yeah. I would have dove into the driveway and just, you know, gotten it right out of the hose. But I could <laughs> never get, I could never see clearly a guaranteed solution for water. I'm like, crap. All right. Well, maybe there'll be somebody at this last water stop. So then I get uh, to this last water stop, which is like, it's not in a town. It's not at a, uh, an intersection or anything. It's just in the middle of this road, which is, looks like it might be around like uh, some houses or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm getting up to this point. Like I see something, I'm like, I, I bet you it's supposed to be off in that turnoff off to the right, but there's nobody there. I'm like oh, coming wow. up to, I'm a mile away. And I'm coming up to, I'm like, there's nobody there. I can't believe this. I'm going to miss four aid stations this entire race. I can't believe this. And, um, <laughs> As I get about 100 yards from the uh, turnout, a van pulls up and stops and opens up the back of the van, and you can see it's full of aid station supplies. Uh. They were just getting there. And uh, so then I pull up, and I'm um, well, do you got any water? And he's kind of like, you know, he's like nonchalantly like going about his business. Yeah, yeah, hang on. I just got to get to get this stuff. I'm like, no, 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 you, you don't <laughs> understand. I just, I just need to get some water right now. So I can keep going because it's kind of like a race situation. Mm. I don't know where the water's at. And so I'm like helping him pull stuff. I'm helping him unload the van because oh I need water. God. So I'm helping him unload the van and I'm like opening up the ice chest as I'm doing this. Oh, this yeah. has exactly what I need. So like this has a Coke. I'll take a Coke real quick. Right, All right, right. I, I need some water. Let's pour some water in there. At this time, uh, Jim, the race director, pulls up in his car because he's been driving the course. 
and um, like he's he's got this happy go lucky attitude. Oh, Jason, you know how's the race going? Are you enjoying it? And I just look at him, and if he could see my eyes behind my eye behind my sunglasses, he would have known how extremely pissed off I was <laughs> about the lack of aid stations right. on the course. And I was just I was so upset, and I just I don't think I even said anything. I just I knew if I said something, it was just going to come off the wrong way. So I just kept silent. And uh, I got my water, I got an apple juice or something, and I got out of there. And I was like, all right, I only got like, you know, 15 miles to go. I just got to go as fast as possible and, you know, hope, you know, hope Derek missed the eight stations like I did, which mm. I don't think he missed any of them. Every May station that I missed, I think they were there for him for some reason. And um, oh, so I got into the uh, town. I finished the event. Uh, Jim was actually there to greet me. And... Um, you know, logged in my time and he was super excited, you know, having me uh, break the course record by like 20 minutes or something like that. And uh, which is partially the reason why I missed the A stations because I just didn't expect somebody to be there so fast. You know, Makes that sense. first town, that first town, the person didn't think that they would need to wave me down. They thought I would just know what they looked like. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, the water stop at the intersection, apparently, you know, that guy doesn't necessarily get there for the first couple of racers. He's more there for, you know, the people stuck in the, you know, the, the heat of later in the day. Right. Uh, and then, you know, the people in the uh, small town behind the elementary school, they just really weren't expecting anybody to be there that early. So they hadn't really put much of a present mm. presence out front by the road. And, uh, you know, that right. van getting there right at the last second for the uh, last A station, he, you know, he just wasn't expecting anybody to be there that soon. It was just like, <laughs> oh man, this is such a cluster. Yeah. So I finished the race, uh, took a shower and, um, I was kind of like bummed cause I felt like there was no way that I was able to accomplish what I wanted to do, which was, you know, beat Derek by 30 minutes right, right. and, uh, take the overall. But, um, uh -huh. So I was kind of like, I was kind of down to the dumps, took my shower, whatever, went mm. back there. Cause I think Jim told me he was going to order some pizzas and went back mm. there to hang out with Jim. And I'm like, so how long, uh, so how long ago did Derek came in? He's all, oh, he came in like uh, six minutes ago. And I kind of like did the math in my head. I was like, ah, oh, I think I missed it by like four minutes. Mm. I think I'm pretty sure I came in second place. And I left, yeah. I actually left the event thinking that I finished second. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't until, um, I think it wasn't until Jim had emailed me the, uh, or it wasn't until Jim had posted the results like the next day yeah. that, uh, I saw that I had actually beat him by like 20 something minutes, which gave me the overall, if you combine the three stage rages, uh -huh. I, um, I think I ended up winning it by like six or eight minutes, which is pretty uh, crazy when you consider game. that's over 30 hours of racing. Uh huh. Wow. And, what a tight um, race. So that was pretty cool. So, uh, Jim was super ecstatic about that. You know, everybody was really happy. Uh -huh. Um, I tried, um, I was writing race reports for mm. uh, most of the events. The only one I didn't write a race report for was the devil mountain double, mm. uh, just because, um, I just, I never got around to it. I'm really crappy at writing race reports. <laughs> I mean, everybody says I write really good ones. I'm just really lazy about it. Right. right. And so I wrote the race report, uh, uh, during the following week. And I remember, I think even before the following weekend, um, who's the, uh, who's the overall director of, um, the triple crown series, Chuck Bremel. Yeah, Chuck. So I remember Chuck sending out an email and, uh, you know, so I was pretty stoked on the whole, you know, accomplishment of, you know, being the first recumbent rider to ever finish the mm. triple crown stage race because nobody's actually done that before on a recumbent. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, People have done, you know, single stages, but nobody's ever done all three of them. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty cool to be able to win the overall. And then I remember getting the email uh, congratulating all the racers who, uh, you know, completed all the triple crowns, all the racers who, you know, podiumed in the uh, divisions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it kind of went on to you know talk about how you know it was brought up you know to his to his attention that the um you know that it might not be fair to have a recumbent in the overall class, so mm-hmm. I was going to be reclassified in my own division, and Derek would be reinstated as the overall winner of the men's division and I thought to myself, interesting well, that's kind of like not fair you're changing the rules after the race you're not supposed <laughs> to be able to do that I could understand yeah. them making those changes you know for the following year right. but you can't do that you know for the same event after it's already happened mm. and so you know I had to you know I had to state in like in my race report you know I kind of ended the race report you know I had to kind of apologize to you know the people who had follow you know been following it because a lot of people had uh-huh. been following the goings-ons of the race because you know they all wanted me to be able to you know to be to brag about you know taking that overall they all wanted to see that accomplishment Mm. and even though i did you know win overall you know i kind of put a clause at the end of my race report saying you know i just want to thank everybody you know unfortunately you know we weren't given you know the overall men's category we were reclassified in the recumbent category Mm -hmm. and uh that's gonna would be what it is you know from now on apparently and you know just like it was kind of like, you know, I didn't, I didn't really care myself because, you know, I did what I came out to do and it's the experience that I'm going for, not the trophy or the plaque. And, um, so, you know, I did that and, um, it really didn't, um, apparently the, um, the changing of the rules, uh, did not sit well with, um, the ultra community in general, not even just the mm-hmm. recumbent community, just the overall community. Mm-hmm. of the triple crown series. Um, a lot of people were not happy with that. And, um, a lot of people shared those, uh, feelings with Chuck, you know, via email during the following couple weeks, mm-hmm. uh, between the final result and the, um, the award ceremony. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Chuck ended up, um, uh, uh, sending out another email retracting his decision to reclassify me in a separate division after the fact and put the oh, rules no back kidding. to the, uh, the original, uh, state of affairs. So, um, I believe I was reclassified as the, you know, the men's overall winner. Mm-hmm. I do not believe I ever got a plaque for that. I don't, I don't think they ever Uh-oh. remade the plaques. I think, honestly, uh-huh. I think Derek actually got, uh, still got the men's overall plaque. It was just announced that I was the overall one. I don't remember how it went. Um, I'm not the type of person who keeps trophies or plaques around. Um, yeah, uh, my mom usually, uh, keeps hold of like the really important ones and she keeps them in her, uh, you know, her collection of, uh, things to, uh, remember us by, <laughs> but, uh, I don't personally keep any of that stuff. Oh, so, um, yeah, so oh. it's kind of one of those things, you know, the, uh, one of the things that cruise bike as a company is out there to try to promote and prevent in the future is what they call bikeism. And mm. it's kind of like racism, racism against bikes, mm. you know? Because uh, there is a lot of it, and you, you've seen it, you know, personally through you. You've seen it happen to me, like on the noon rides with the lab. You yeah. know, just by showing up on a different bike, a lot of people have a lot of prejudice towards you just because you're on something different from what they are, mm-hmm. whether or not they think it's an advantage or not. Just because it's different, 
they, they fear it. They don't like it. They, mm-hmm. they, they let you know straight up front that, you know, they're not happy with you. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, honestly, I just don't see any reason for it. You know, you're mm-hmm. getting another person out there, you know, it doesn't matter if they're faster or slower than you or different than you. It's another mm-hmm. person to share the experience with. And, right. you know, although I can't, you know, I can't understand their point of view. I've had to experience it on multiple occasions mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Chuck changing the results after the fact was probably not his own decision. It was probably brought on by, you know, a few select people, you know, right. expressing their concerns mm-hmm. and him, you know, taking their, you know, taking, uh, you know, taking in their concerns without considering, you know, the fairness to the community as a whole. And, um, it was just interesting to, you know, have to have gone through those uh, changes of the rule. And then, you know, it was nice to be able to have them, you know, revise back to the original state showing that, you know, at least, you know, with a little bit of pressure that mm-hmm. the integrity of the sport can still be maintained. Yeah. Well, Jason definitely sounds like you had an incredible and tumultuous adventure to start off your double century career, career on, on the road. And I'm really glad you were able to share all of that. I think just for history's sake, for everyone to be able to hear about that story. Well, that was a really great conversation, Jason. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you everyone else for tuning into this episode. I know there was a lot there, a lot to digest and a lot to uh, improve our own cycling. So we look forward to being able to see you on the next episode. Until then, keep spinning ultra and we'll see you out there on the roads. And that concludes our three-part series covering Jason Perez's 2016 California Triple Crown Series stage race victory. I hope you enjoyed all three episodes. If you haven't seen the others, you'll definitely want to check them out. We covered the Devil Mountain Double Century, the Central Coast Double Century, and of course, the White Mountain Double Century. Stay inspired, keep safe out there, and until next time, keep spinning ultra.